Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Ian Tolhurst. He's a vegetable grower, and he decided to integrate trees into his operation five years ago. This episode will be interesting to everyone that wants to do the same and to vegetable growers in general, but there are a few themes that will interest anyone interested in agroforestry. Those are, for example, wood chips. Uh, Ian uses wood chips uh, as the sole source of fertility for his vegetables. And of course, biomass and wood chips are huge outputs of mature agroforestry systems, and understanding the potential uh, that lies with them and how to use them uh, in our different productions is absolutely crucial. And Ian gives us really interesting information in that respect. The other element is that they've been uh, running trials on planting the understory. Uh, by that, I mean the space in the tree lines uh, and trying to utilize that space as better as possible. That's a big opportunity and a recurring theme in, in agroforestry, but it does come with some challenges and considerations. And Ian does a great job talking about that and really giving us a nuanced um, a view on that opportunity and the conditions that must be present for us to be planting these, these plants there. Enjoy the interview. Hi, Ian, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Etienne. Yes, and thank you very much for your invitation. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. And we have so many interesting things to discuss with you. Maybe we could just kick things off by uh, having a bit of a history of the farm and an overview of uh, your different productions. Yes, um, I've been an organic farmer now um, for more than 40 years, in fact, since 1976. Uh, I've been on this particular farm for 33 years. It's um, quite a small farm. We're just over eight hectares in total. We're situated in the south of the UK, not not terribly far from Oxford, just to the south of Oxford. In fact, we're very close. In fact, we can actually see the River Thames. We grow a very wide range of organic vegetables, and we are growing probably around more than 100 different types of vegetable in total, and that is not varieties, but that's types of vegetable. And over the course of the year, we, we do around 300 separate sowings and plantings. So we're very diverse. We have field vegetables, we have garden vegetables, and we have tunnel and greenhouse production. We produce all our own plants. We are a stock-free organic farm, and that means that we are, for want of a better word, we are a vegan farm. We don't use any animal inputs at all. We don't use any manure or any product from livestock at all on the farm. And the farm is run predominantly on a rotational system with green manures, um, with supplementation from uh, ramule chip wood, which we've been experimenting with in the last five, six years, and also composted wood chip, which comes from local sources. So the farm is very much um, a self-contained unit. We're not dependent on very much at all coming into the farm from outside in order to support long-term fertility. And we're cropping the whole year round. We don't stop at all. We, we crop every every week of the year. In fact, we're harvesting four days out of every week during the year. Most of what we sell is sold very locally. In fact, nine, around 90% of our entire output is sold within a 10-mile a 
15 kilometer radius of the farm. And in fact, half of that total is sold direct from the farm through our farm shop, which has become very busy since the um, pandemic started. So that's sort of general overview of the farm. The, the, the farm is very much geared towards biodiversity and everything we do on the farm is, is really about promoting, encouraging and working with biodiversity. So we, we like to think of the farm really as producing biodiversity as its main output, but as a byproduct of that biodiversity, we are growing vegetables and fruit. And we, we produce um, very good yields. We have over 120, 140 tonnes of vegetables each year. Um, so we're quite confident this is a system which, which does work in, in the real world. We are a, a fully commercial farm. We have no support outside of the farm at all. We rely totally on the farm income to support the farm and all the people that work on the farm. Agroforestry is something we've really only introduced relatively recently in the last uh, five or six years, although we've always been planting trees, but we've only really made a concerted effort to establish agroforestry in the last five years. Yeah, before we go into agroforestry uh, specifically, could you give us a bit more uh, information on uh, what soil you have and your climate? Right, so our climate is uh, maritime, so um, we get quite a, quite a lot of rain, although actually it's a fairly dry part of the country. Our annual rainfall is around 520 millimetres a year. The temperature ranges from sort of in the depths of winter, um, we, we may get down as low as minus 10 for a week or two. In the summer, we rarely get above uh, plus 30. Um, the last three or four winters have been very mild. We haven't really had very much frost at all, so it's become a very mild climate. And we we don't really get very much in the way of snow. Being in, in England means that we do get damp conditions, although it's not particularly wet, it, it is damp. And uh, we, we are subject to some pretty strong winds as well, which can be quite a problem at times. The soil type is a clay loam. It's not considered ideal for horticulture. It's really, it's suitability really would be more towards grassland and, and tree cover. Um, it's grade 3B land, which puts it as fairly low quality. It's quite thin. It's, it's over chalk and stone. Our total topsoil depth is in the range of up to around 200 millimetres, so it's pretty shallow. Um, it tends to get quite dry in the summer because our rainfall is usually quite low. Uh, it's very stony. We have more than 40% stone over over 10 millimetres, so it does tend to dry very quickly. So it's not considered ideal for horticulture, uh, although we have made it very fertile. It was quite poor when we came here, but it's now producing really well, and it, I think, goes to show that even poor quality land can be made fertile. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I'm sure we'll get um, an understanding um, of how you did that through the, the episode. Maybe you want to... Um, Explain to us uh, how you came to agroforestry, um, why you felt the need to, to experiment with that and, and how that occurred. Yes, that's an interesting question. It's something I've been thinking about for quite some time. And planting trees, particularly in the middle of a field where you're growing vegetables, is something you, you do need to think about because there are various <laughs> implications, of course. I've always been a great lover of trees. I've always planted trees. And, you know, we're one of the few farms anywhere in the area that's actually put new hedges in. So we've actually created hedges and shelter belts way back in the past. We've got some hedges and shelter belts now, which are over 33 years old and, and very productive. But to actually divide the field up into smaller units was something which did take quite a, a lot of thinking. 
I wanted to, because I've always been passionate about trees, I wanted to try and see where we could improve the biodiversity of the field um, as one reason, but also to improve the shelter of the field. Vegetables really don't like growing in windy places, and we are in a fairly windy part of the country, and we, we, we have had quite a bit of damage from the past as a result of wind. So one of the prime reasons, I suppose, really was to try and see if we could improve the shelter of the field in order to create a, a microclimate. You know, we, we can see how well it works by hedges, but once you get away from the hedge, the field becomes increasingly more open. And some crops, particularly things like squash, are very sensitive to wind. So it was really about trying to improve the, the shelter of the field. But the biodiversity aspects were very important too. And I just felt there had to be a a, a, a unison between trees and crops. You know, in this country, we've had agriculture has been split up into sort of sections. You've got somebody doing livestock somewhere, somebody else doing arable somewhere, somebody else doing vegetable crops, someone else doing trees, and they don't seem to mix up. They're all kept separate. They're not part and parcel of the whole system. So we really wanted to bring trees in and make them integral to the whole farming system and that's really where we sort of got to and it took some while really to decide a how far apart we're going to plant the trees b what species we're going to use uh, and c how we were going to manage them long term because at the back of my mind there's this sort of slightly nagging fear that we're taking land out of vegetable production putting it into trees which are not going to be as economically viable uh, as the land mm. upon which they have been growing in the past where we've had you know quite high value vegetables so we had to think about the economic implications of what we do um the fact that we got a, a very well supported grant from the Wood woodland trust in order to pay for the trees and also the guards and the stakes that went with the trees i think was the deciding factor if we'd had to pay for that out of farm income i think there's a possibility we may not have done it I think it was, you know, it was the support from the Woodland Trust which probably really drove the thing forward and, and was the final sort of decision maker for, for us as a, as a commercial farm. Did you receive any technical support as well beyond the financial aspect? Yes, the Woodland Trust were very helpful in that sense. I, I didn't feel we needed huge amounts of technical support because I've, I've You know, I've had the history of planting trees over many decades, so we're, we're quite used to growing trees. Uh, but nevertheless, it was it was helpful. It was useful to have their support. Um, and I think, you know, for many farms, this would be absolutely essential because a lot of people have no experience at all of growing trees. You know, it's often something they've never, ever done. So I think having technical support is really critical. So, you know, if it's, if it's something that's going to encourage more farmers, then... Financial support, particularly in the cost of the trees and technical support, I think is absolutely uh, essential in order to make it work properly and also in order to guarantee the success of, of what's being done. But you, you had that experience. And, and so which uh, tree species, for example, did you choose and for what reasons? Right. Um, what we actually wanted was indigenous trees. We didn't want to introduce non-indigenous species for various reasons, but primarily because There's a fear that ind indigenous species will benefit biodiversity more. That's not always true, but it tends to be the case. And also, we didn't want to radically change the landscape with, with non 
native um, material. So we went for um, cherry, which is grown very widely around here. It's one of the common trees. Um, alder, birch, oak, white beam, and what else? There's one or two others. I'm just trying to think now what else we have. Um, oh, maple, field maple. So they are trees which we would see in this environment and, and also trees which we we we, had, we do understand and know quite well. And they have a, a range of diverse habitats which they create. So the idea was to mix these up. Within that mix of trees, we also planted apples. So we have a what we refer to as a low-density apple plantation. So we have apples every uh, 15 metres. And in between the apples, uh, we have these range of trees. The oak trees are primarily going to be managed for wood for timber in the long term so it's a very long term view so it won't be in my lifetime but beyond my lifetime uh, and they'll be managed primarily as 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 individual trees and the other trees we're going to manage in, in a variety of different ways so we we were very keen to have purely just indigenous species in fact woodland trusts i don't think would actually grant aid any trees unless they lit they were indigenous i think they have a policy of only supporting indigenous trees so that perhaps that was a deciding factor as well but they were willing to fund uh, some productive trees such as apple as well or is that something that you just added on top they were quite happy to fund the apples and, and i think they have done in one or two other situations as well i think partly because they saw our farm as being a a good example they want to be able to take people to because we are a well-known farm we get widely visited by people from all over the world so i think from their point of view it's probably a promotional possibility for them um which is why they allowed us to plant apples but i think they they have also done it on other farms because the density is quite low i think it was acceptable i think if we decided to plant only apples i think well, I'm pretty sure they would have said, no, we can't support that, which I think is probably fair enough. So they did, they put a lot of money into this. I think the total budget um, over a couple of years, because we had to put additional guards around the apple trees because of deer problems, I think the, the, the total budget came to probably in excess of 3,000 euros. So it was a pretty, you know, a pretty significant amount of money they put in. But that the, the 3,000 euros... Uh is the cost of the trees, and then you add your labour on top of that? The labour we, we had to supply ourselves. They weren't going to pay labour, and, and that was okay with us. I think we accepted that right from the start. We didn't really expect to get the labour. And then we pay for them, and something we did ourselves. We had a few volunteers for a few days. They also helped. So it wasn't too much of a problem, although the ongoing maintenance cost is, is considerably higher than, than than perhaps I thought about initially and that's something which we've, we've still got to sort of deal with uh, but the actual investment costs for us if it's just labour was quite quite acceptable we were happy to do that and then everything to do with uh, you know tree guards or a potential staking for some trees um, mulch is that something that you you brought or was there funding for that no, they funded the, the, the tree guards and the stakes. The mulch, which we put down for weed control, we did that ourselves. And okay. the material is, is virtually free, but the labour we had to pay for and transport, obviously. But um, no, they supplied all, all, of, all the fixed part of the, uh, of the project. There's a lot of things I want to come back to in what you said, but just to get this kind of clear image of, uh, of your tree systems, 
So uh, we have an apple tree every uh, 15 meters with some wild trees in between. Yeah. And then how much space do you have between each tree line for your vegetable production? Right, okay. So the apple trees are at 15, that's one five meters apart. And then there's additional trees between those, which are at 1.5 meters apart. And then the actual row, the tree line, we refer to it as a tree line, the, the various tree lines, there's actually six in the whole field. The field is seven hectares. So, no, big pardon. The field is 2.5 hectares. So we've divided that up into six blocks. And between the tree lines, from centre to centre, we have 23 metres. And the reason I came up with 23 metres, it sounds like an odd figure. You know, why not 20? Why not 25? 23 metres happens to fit my irrigation system, um, which is a large boom uh, sprinkler. So that was a... For us, it was quite an important consideration. We, we we do use irrigation quite extensively in the summer because we are in a fairly dry part of the country on dry soil. So this was the main criteria really for tree line spacing was really to do with the access for, for irrigation. And then between the trees, we, we have vegetables growing as normally and we can fit 28 rows in there. And 28 rows also is quite a convenient figure for us. It, it, because we tend to do things in multiples of four or eight. Um, so that kind of works quite well too. So we wouldn't want to go really much closer because I think the risk of losing too much land is too great. And we wouldn't want to go too much further apart, given that you know we are looking at trees in terms of improving biodiversity and, and shelter from wind. And it, I'm quite happy with the spacing. And we've had five years of trials with it now it seems to work okay it's looking very nice now because the trees are quite well established um you know we've got autumn colors there this year which is beautiful the cherry are are fantastic in the autumn so it kind of looks right for the size of the field the field is is almost a, a perfect square which is very convenient um it has a very slight gradual slope to the south which is also incredibly convenient for vegetable growing so we have the trees running north south which i think for us is pretty essential i would not i would probably not have done this if it had been east west because the shading effect would be too great it's quite convenient and the, the rows are long enough to be sensible they're 150 meters long we would have liked them longer but that's the size of the field um so the idea of having very long, narrow cropping areas is is actually quite conducive to to you know to use of machinery. Do the trees get in, in the way of the sprinklers? Um, I, I'm just wondering how, as the trees grow, if they might bother you in some way with that aspect. No, the irrigation system is mobile, so it's a boom sprayer which pulls itself along. So the the boom sprayer, which is 20 meters wide, fits in the middle between the trees. Ah, okay. You know, if we've got trees at 23 meters, the boom sprayer is at 12 meters in the middle um, and covers the whole plot. And the trees get a little bit of watering on the edge. They don't get full irrigation, but they get some irrigation. What are the outcomes? Because you said um, that mainly you were doing this for uh, wind and uh, biodiversity. Uh, five years on, are trees big enough that you're starting to see some outcomes? Or, you know, how do you feel about that? Uh, are you a bit disappointed or are they growing nicely? Very well. I mean, this is classic tree country. You know, it's not difficult growing trees here. If you mm-hmm. turn your back on land within 10 years, it's growing trees. You know, it's that sort of, it's that sort of land. Yeah. Um, and, you know, given our climate, you know, trees grow remarkably well in this climate. They really do. And it's, a, it's the right sort of type for trees. So in terms of 
being good for trees, it's perfect for trees. It couldn't be better. Um, in fact, that getting a bit of irrigation also helps. In terms of outputs, we are getting some outputs. This year we had the first proper apple crop. It wasn't huge. Um, it was quite modest. You know, it only took me half a day to pick it. Um, we have, in the total, we have 60, 60 apple trees. Um, I harvested around 100 and 20 kilograms of apples so it's actually really quite a small amount um, some trees didn't produce hardly at all because we had we had quite a late frost we did some damage so we lost we lost some due to weather that's normal we expect that because there's a range of varieties it, it does give us some resilience to um, extreme weather so the ones that flowered early escaped the, the late frost and produced fruit um, this may happen from time to time and we are subject to late frost here it's quite a frosty part of the country but we did have an output next year would be much better probably we're, we're also getting uh, a little bit of leaf fall now onto the onto the soil which is also beneficial leaves are incredibly useful at improving fertility so we've got a little bit of that along the edges we also have under the tree lines we've also experimented with trying to integrate other perennial crops so within two of the tree lines we have daffodil bulbs we planted we planted 10,000 mixed daffodils when we did the trees some five six years ago so we are getting a crop from those we we picked those in the spring they come quite early between february and, and april there's a range of varieties so we get some we get some daffodils daffodils are not particularly high value crop in fact they're quite low value crop but it does mean that we've got something nice to put into our farm shop so it helps to sell other things it's difficult to put a, a direct value on it but it, it does have a value uh, we've also had rhubarb under one of the tree lines, and that sort of worked okay for two or three years, but it's not working so well now, primarily because we have a, an inherent disease in the field, which we, we, we took on when we took the field, which is versicillium wilt, which I didn't realise at the time, but rhubarb suffers quite badly from wilt. So that is gradually dying out. Uh, another crop we tried, also not successful, was um, globe artichokes which also happen to suffer from verticillium wilt which is something else I didn't realize you know you, you learn these things <laughs> as you go along um, knowing what I know now it would have been a different scenario and we have another tree line where we have perennial flowers which are herbaceous flowers which we raise especially um, with the idea um, to allow them to be picked for decoration and for sales in the shop and that's that's some of those have worked quite well in fact we are picking we've only just finished picking some of those a few weeks ago so our attempts at additional crops between the tree lines some have been quite successful others not at all and i think with the experience we got we would have perhaps done things differently in that sense what would you have done differently uh, well we wouldn't we wouldn't have planted the rhubarb and we wouldn't have planted the artichokes um mm -hmm. or if we had we would have perhaps done some biofumigation because we can use a green manure for, for reducing the problem of this disease however that would only work for a few years and eventually the disease would gradually spread in from surrounding areas so it wouldn't be a, a long-term solution so i think knowing what i know now we would not have done rhubarb we would not have done artichokes we would have saved ourselves a lot of work and quite a bit of money as well so you know that's something we've learned as part of the experience growing crops underneath the trees is potentially problematical um, there are things which will work. Uh, I mean, if we hadn't had the versicillium wilt, the rhubarb and the artichokes would have worked quite well for quite some years because they don't mind partial shade. 
Um, I do know people are trying things like black currants and raspberries, gooseberries, and yes, they, they can be made to work, but it really increases the, the maintenance value. And also these crops are not popular crops to be grown in UK. They're very expensive to pick. Uh, we have serious labour shortage in agriculture in UK. It's even worse now because of the, the Brexit situation. So to find people to pick these crops would be really difficult and they, they often really don't pay at all because things like black currants, people just do not buy black currants. They, they buy frozen black currants, and that's the only time they buy them. Well, we're not really in the business of doing that sort of product. So there are difficulties with finding alternative crops to grow underneath the trees. There's crops which will grow, but whether they're economically viable, whether they're suitable for marketing is another question. So I think we're, we're now at a stage where within the, the six tree lines, we have two which are still producing the flowers and, and will do for probably quite some time, but the others have more or less died out apart from the odd flowers. We, we, we've kind of let them go back to nature and they're, they're just growing a mixed vegetation, which in itself is incredibly valuable. It contains a huge biodiversity resource and we've had surveys done of flora and fauna in the field and we've got something like over 60 different wildflowers growing there. So it's been very successful in that sense. So one of the outputs really is, is is the biodiversity. And this is something we have been measuring. There's been quite extensive measuring done on our biodiversity. And you know, at the end of the day, that was one of the original uh, motivations for, for doing the agroforestry. It was to increase biodiversity and that we are seeing quite obvious signs of that happening. Uh, bird life has increased quite dramatically because there's more places for birds to hang out. Um, and that's helping to control things like voles. We have a very high population of potentially high population of, of voles in the ground, but we also have a very high population of predator birds and the raptors. We have red kites, goshawks. Um, the goshawks in particular have started to use the trees for perching. So that's helped the, the problem with voles. So we're not looking really purely at the commercial output of the agroforestry, but looking as much as in, in being as important with the biodiversity aspect of the project. And in that respect, you said you, you saw some um, outcomes. Do you really think it's a significant impact on your vegetable production? Or is it also that you, know, you wanted biodiversity out of an ethical stance on your production methods? Yes, it's more the latter. I mean, we haven't seen, you know, we haven't seen any big increase in yields from vegetables as yet, but it's still relatively early days. I mean, if we do see an increase in yields, it would be primarily due to a better microclimate and possibly less wind damage. But then against that, we have the possibility of, of, of reduced light levels in certain points of the rotation. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Um, I don't think we went into this with the expectation that we were going to make a dramatic improvement on yields. But what we, we are seeing, we have seen a considerable improvement in our soils in the last few years. And that's not really just down to the agroforestry. It's down to the fact that we've been using round chip wood and composted wood. Uh, and, you know, that's made that's made a, a much bigger dramatic difference to our output than the trees have. Trees will become part of that ramial chip system as well because some of these trees we will be using for wood chip. That's one of the reasons we plant them, so we will have some raw material to use for ramial chip wood and for composting. So in time, they will be, um, they will be increasingly used for fertility building, and that's something which is still going to take some years. We're probably at least four or five years away from any timber production in that sense. So it's a long-term view, really. 
before we go into the the wood chips because that's that's something absolutely fascinating i really want to go into some detail on how do these trees change your operations with the vegetables and and the first angle is um is it easy for you knowing that you have vegetables growing with different rotations to then come and um you know pick your apples or prune your trees and i'd really like to understand how the cycles of the trees and the vegetables kind of intersect okay well that's something we're, we're still learning about <laughs> um i mean the pruning of the trees up to now it's mostly been the apple trees it's been relatively easy because they've been quite small trees um we've got trees now which have a good shape and they're looking they're looking pretty pretty productive for the future the pruning is because it's all done by hand anyway we don't need machinery access for that so it doesn't have any impact on where we grow vegetables um if we have vegetables growing and they're quite close to the tree lines then yes there is a potential problem there with with access with machinery and that's something we've, we've yet to sort of deal with in the future and we may end up losing a couple of rows either side of the vegetable growing plot in order to allow the trees to spread but the intention the longer term intention is to try and keep the trees relatively narrow so we're not going to let them spread out too much so there will be an ongoing pruning going on it won't be every year because of the way our vegetable rotation works we have a seven-year rotation two of those years are in a green manure crop which we can use as a really convenient point of access so we can get into the trees quite easily with machinery should we need to uh, without doing any damage or not much damage at all to the soil not jeopardizing the, the growing of crops so the fact we have this long-term fertility building part of the rotation is, is very beneficial for tree management so we don't see a major problem in that sense in terms of access um there's been some odd complications which we hadn't thought about previously and it's really to do with crop covers we we use crop covers sometimes primarily for keeping pigeons off we have a huge pigeon population in the area so we tend to use crop covers um, which were quite easy to move around the field because we could just slide them sideways now we've got a row of trees in the way we, we have to kind of roll them up and take them off and, and take them somewhere else it's not as easy as it used to be it's the only major disadvantage i've come up against and you know we've found a way of dealing with that as, as one does and it's not particularly it doesn't really take us that much longer than it used to but it's a slight annoyance if you like and a hindrance mm. um apart from that you know the machinery it's not a problem you know we're not huge farms so we haven't got you know huge great big machines and you know, then we have nothing more than three meters wide so everything fits quite well um i did have to modify one of our, our hoeing machines because it was a bit too wide and tended to be too close to trees and so we had to leave a, a row out so i've modified that so we've we've made some minor modifications in order to allow for trees but nothing nothing too major um as the trees grow, then obviously we're going to have to do more more work on them. We're going to be cutting some, some will be coppiced. And, and as I said earlier, that fits in quite well with our rotation because we'll do that during the two years when the land is back into fertility building, when we've got good possibilities of access. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's that sounds good. And the fact that you work the soil, um, and I assume you till the soil for your vegetable production, is that enough to keep the roots of the trees kind of out of the vegetable's way? Is that something that's a concern for you or not at all? It hasn't been a concern up to now because the trees have been relatively small. It's going to be more of an issue going forward from now on. And what we intend to do on a 
I wouldn't say yearly annual basis, but sort of within a rotational basis, we, we will be running a deep, a single deep tine um, along the edge of the tree line in order to prevent any trees spreading roots too far across the field. We don't want tree roots across the field because that would impact quite seriously on, on crop production. Um, there's one tree there which I think I'm going to remove, and that's birch because they're very shallow rooted. Mm. Um, it wasn't a good choice. Knowing what I know now, we wouldn't have used them. Um, the alder, which are really deep, and the oak, which are quite deep, they're fine. Um, but yes, yeah, some some species tend to have shallow roots, and I think you know, knowing what we know now, we would have left those out and gone for a more deeper tap rooting type tree. We we will have to, you know, these trees are going to be subject to a lot of management in the future. They're not. It's not as if we're just going to let them grow wild. We do have to maintain them, manage them, because we need to continue with the vegetable production. So yes, we we will have to do some uh, some root pruning down down one side of the trees. And earlier you mentioned when we were talking about the initial investment uh, into establishing the tree systems that actually what surprised you was that the maintenance was higher than you expected. Um, what is taking so much time? Is it the pruning? Is it uh, mowing the, the spaces between the, the trees? Yes, it's, it's all those things. We don't actually mow very often at all. We tend to leave it for several years before we mow it. Um, it's really more to do with, with um, the, the, the shaping of the trees. So, you know, we had quite a bit of pruning to do on the trees. So the apple trees have taken more effort per tree than the other trees but even so it's still quite a bit of work going into the other trees staking some of the stakes rotted before the tree was properly established so we had to redo some stakes um it's a lot of sort of fiddling around you know we had a problem in one tree line with with brambles creeping in which we had to we had to manage by digging by hand that was quite a big job um sort of it's lots of bits and pieces, really, which, if you add that up over the year, comes to quite a bit of labour. I wouldn't say it's particularly onerous; so it's mostly winter work, but it does add to it does add to the, the the sort of the workload on the farm. And we are a very busy farm. We don't really get a time in the winter when we're we're slack. We're, we're working right the way through. You know, we only we still have almost as many people working here in the winter as we do in the summer. So we've had to sort of reorganise staff a little bit and what we're looking for really is a person who will come in on a sort of fairly regular but perhaps you know half a day a week during the winter to to manage the trees to look after the trees and and that may well increase in the future as we start to to coppice the trees or pollard the trees there will of course be a lot more work going into that but then you know we are producing a, a product which for us will be the ramule chipwood or chipwood for composting so in that sense, we can justify putting more labour in. At the moment, we're still at the sort of the maintenance establishment stage. Um, I must say the last 12 months has been less work because we did quite a lot two years ago. We have less this this year. So it goes in, goes in cycles, really. And I think um, we've yet to see longer term how much effort will go into this. You know, we have 600 trees in total. So there's quite a few trees there to be, to be managed. Um, Okay, some will be left to grow full size, but quite a lot will be coppiced and pollarded. So it would be, you know, regular every sort of six, seven, eight years would be going in and doing work on those trees. And for the the oaks that you're trying to um, give a, a timber shape, let's say, 
uh, how, how is that going and, and uh, are you having someone from the outside do this or are you able to do it your, on your own? Well, I've been doing that part of it myself because I quite enjoy it. Um, so the oak trees have been managed primarily to grow a tall, straight trunk, which is what you know what people will need in the future. Um, it's pretty simple. They're, they're growing really well. I mean, the oak have established beautifully. In fact, they've established better than the birch. The birch are quite difficult to establish, actually. They don't, birch do not like being moved. Whereas the oak have established really well, and they're, they're looking very strong. Um, we haven't lost a single tree. They're all there. So that, that part of it is quite simple. I think managing the oaks is probably the least of our problems because we're only going to be trimming the, the, the trunk to ensure a straight tree. Um, once the other trees get well established, it will encourage the oaks to grow straight anyway. So we think, well, we don't know for sure, but we think that's going to probably work quite quite well. Uh, the other trees, because they're going to be coppiced and pollarded, um, we'll be doing that on a rotational basis. Well, it will be interesting to see how how the how the trees evolve. I mean, I visited a farm not so long ago, and uh, he had pl- planted a lot of timber trees, and clearly he didn't have the expertise himself or didn't benefit from enough technical support. But he was having a really hard time getting nice timber out of his uh, agroforestry trees because obviously the tree wants to create branches, you know, further down, and it's not growing in a forest, so you have to be really proactive in shaping it. But it's great to hear that you're successful in that domain. Yes, it certainly takes more effort. I mean, if you had oaks within a plantation, you wouldn't have to probably spend as much time on individual trees. So there's definitely a higher input there. But for us on this scale, which is relatively small, it's it's manageable. We can do it. And as I said earlier, it's part of one of the costs that we have to endure in 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 the way of we are going to be producing a product at some point in the future, which is going to give us uh, you know a good fertility. Uh, um, maintenance factor for the farm. I, I wanted to come back to something um, on this idea of uh, your tree line and leaving kind of natural biodiversity and, uh, and grasses come back. Um, are you concerned that this kind of acts as a seed reserve for weeds to come and colonize or brambles? Because uh, that's a concern we often hear and I'm wondering how that's affecting the vegetables. Yeah, so it's definitely a concern. It was w- one of my concerns right from the start before we even planted. There was always this sort of fear in the back of mind that you're going to end up with horrendous weed problems um so far we haven't because we're we're doing fair bit of cultivation we are min till rather than no till you know we've reduced tillies we haven't stopped tillies it's difficult in basement to do no till um we can control weeds quite easily with mechanical means i mean we have steerage hose we've got interrow equipment so weeds have not really been a problem and if there's anything at all it, it it's very close to the tree line it's the very last row um where we maybe see some weed pressure and and definitely in one or two crops there has been a slight yield reduction because of weed pressure but i don't see it as being a major problem we're quite keen to encourage greater diversity of flora in the field. So we we have actually sown um, a whole range of different species as part of our green manure. We've actually sown what many people refer to as weeds, but we call them wildflowers, within that to encourage greater diversity. So we're not, um, we don't object to weeds. Um, we, we manage them in, in a specific way and we look at them in a much more positive way than perhaps some growers would. We do control them up to certain points within the, the cropping cycle. We don't want weeds when plants are very small and we've got we've got pretty good systems of dealing with that. So I, at the moment, um, maybe ask me in 10 years' time, but at the moment I don't 
and I don't see these weeds as being a, a major problem. Um, uh, perennial weeds are p- perhaps more of an issue. If we were to get problems with perennial weeds, then we may have to have a, a strip either side of the trees that we continually cultivate in order to keep that back, and that may perhaps reduce some cropping area, but it's still doable. You know, We're quite confident we can control those weeds. Um, it's really about having a, a system of, of weed control and we've had to you know we've, we've always had field perimeters we've got hastings there already we're, we're used to dealing with nature encroaching upon what we do you know that's what that's what we're up against we're working with nature and we accept that you know nature does want to encroach so we have systems whereby we can kind of keep that in check so i don't have a huge um paranoia about that in the future but because anything could change I mean, if we ran into a serious weed problem then um we would just have to fire that piece of the field um which is doable um but it could have an impact on on yields for a year or two how wide is that strip the strip on the ground where the trees are growing well it started off not much more than a meter it's now got to sort of two and a half meters which is what i was expecting and we'll probably end up with about three meters and we don't really want to go much beyond that so the tree line will be kept more or less within that space the apple trees are on a fairly dwarf rootstock they won't grow much wider than about four or five meters anyway so they're and they'll, they'll be pruned really to try and maintain a relatively narrow band across across the width of the plot so we're not taking up vegetable space so it, it's going to be quite a heavily managed environment these trees so we are going to keep them relatively narrow um, time will tell us to how successful we are with that and we will inevitably be you know trimming trees back and you know perhaps removing branches at certain times of the year as well in order to give us access. But, you know, we're, we're looking more for height rather than width. Um, so it's going to be relatively tall, and we expect, you know, apart from the oak trees, which would be allowed to go full height, we are expecting, you know, a height of around sort of five, maybe six metres, um, and we will probably not go much beyond that, apart from the oak trees. Okay. And because thanks to your uh, north-south uh, direction and the lines, um, you're not too worried about com- competition for light, for example. No, not at all. Because in the summer, when things are growing, that that shade effect is actually quite modest. It doesn't really yeah. have much. You know, we're used to having this effect because we have quite a few hedges already. So we we know the effect of hedges, and we know that ones you know where they run north south, we don't have a problem. We can crop right up to the hedge. Whereas where the, the the hedges run east to west we have uh, particularly on the on the southern side of the field we have quite a large area which is shady for quite a, a long part of in the winter it's shady the whole the whole day um so yeah we we're used to that and we don't see the shade as being a, a huge factor okay some crops are quite tolerant of shade not every vegetable wants full sun anyway a lot of mm-hmm. vegetables naturally will grow in a, in a partial shady environment so um we don't see it as a major major problem and just going back to the, the tree line, because I do think it's it's an important part. Uh, you said that you don't mow much, but does that mean that you will not mow at all during the growing season or you'll, you'll still come once and, and cut that grass? We don't mow at all during the growing season. Um, we, we may mow early in the spring, but we don't do every tree line every year. We do them perhaps every two to three years. Um, the mowing primarily would be to control things like brambles. It won't be for any other reason we have quite a diverse species of plants growing there so 
we, we're quite happy to let them sort of look after themselves, really. Um, if we get things like nettles growing there, that's fine because nettles are an incredibly useful way of improving biodiversity and they, they, they harbour a huge range of beneficial insects. So we're quite happy for things like that to establish. We would only mow primarily to control aggressive perennial um, shrubs, if you like, you know, things which may start creeping in. Brambles are the, are the main worry really and you go around with a brush cutter or are you able to mechanize that with uh some other machinery yeah we've, <coughs> we've we have a mower trapped a mower flail mower which we can use um it's got okay. offset arrangements so we can offset it between trees it's a bit slow but it's only now and again um <clears throat> a brush cutter a strimmer would it, it is possible but it's quite slow um yeah of course we wouldn't want to do too much like that but we may use yeah. occasional brush cutting yeah very interesting and it's it's fascinating that you've actually you're able to share um an experience about the the understory and utilizing that space because it's an incredibly appealing idea uh both in terms of using space and uh, in this idea of you know intensifying production but clearly it comes with some challenges and it's interesting to see that it seems now that having tested these different options you're actually better off just leaving that strip uh, going to natural vegetation rather than uh, trying to find a market and labor to actually increase production. Yeah, certainly that's that's true in our case. It may not be true for everybody on every farm, but given that you know labor is is our single one biggest expense, and getting skilled labor because you know even picking black currants and gooseberries it takes an element of skill is the, the difficult factor for us in UK. We are very short of of labor to deal with such things i mean you know this year we picked uh over two thousand kilograms of strawberries and that took quite an effort and we had some problems at one point of getting people to do that because of the um the lockdown situation the person that was going to come from abroad was not able to come and been relying on this person for some time so we had to find local labor and, and to be perfectly honest local labor is not used to dealing with these sort of crops and they found it very very hard work even after two hours they've had enough so it's actually really difficult finding people to do these things um and that is the main consideration it's not really an agronomic problem i think you know these crops can be managed to grow quite well but it is the labor input and also on a relatively small area, it takes a huge amount of effort to grow a crop on a small scale and market it and package it and all the things you have to do. Um, we're very busy with vegetables pretty much the whole year, and perennial fruit is actually quite difficult to manage. I mean, we do strawberries, but we've had 40 years of experience of doing it. Um, very few people are able to manage perennial crops and vegetable crops at the same time. If they're only growing perennial crops, it may well work much better for them because they haven't got the pressure of vegetables. But, you know, the vegetables for us, a huge amount of work from yeah. April right through till September, you know, massive input of uh, effort needed, which clashes very much with fruit as well. So on some farms, I'm sure it could be made to work um, economically, but on others, less so. But it's always a challenge to, especially if you're doing direct selling, which which is the case of a lot of the farms we're talking to, it's always a challenge though, to find you know, something that both makes uh, ecological sense, uh, I mean by that, you know, being able to grow in shade, for example, and then that you can actually sell locally. And that's exactly what you said with the black currants. 
I mean, even if you had the labor and everything, um, it's a bit useless to have, you know, six lines of black currants if no one's eating them fresh. And, and that's yeah, a huge part of the challenge. I mean, the, you know, I'll come back to black currants because it's, it's an interesting example, but 99.8% of all the black currants grown in this country go for one source, and that's black currant drink. Mm. And that's, that's the outlet. And it's all done by huge machines, you know, on vast scale. Nobody, you, you never see black currants in the shops ever. They just don't exist. People don't use them. So, yes, they'll grow, and it's a, you know it's often used as a good example of what you can have within tree lines. But actually, the marketing is is incredibly difficult. And if you had the if the labour wasn't an issue, are they on any other berries that could be interesting? At least in the initial years where there's a lot of sunshine. Yeah, raspberries would be very um, very well suited to this. Certainly for the first sort of. Well, probably up to 10 years. Once the tree cover got really dense, you wouldn't be able to do it. But yeah, possibly up to 10 years, you could grow raspberries, which is about their lifespan anyway. They don't usually produce much beyond that. So they would be quite a useful crop to have. Again, it's down to the labour, but um, I think you have a better chance for raspberries than you have for blackcurrants. But then you still have the issues of doing that in a kind of functional, practical way where you can trellis them efficiently and, and all these considerations but it is an interesting yeah well there are some raspberry varieties the autumn fruiting ones which you you don't have to train you just cut them down every year which is far easier yeah. to and you can also you do biannual cropping on on the other early fruiting raspberries as well and crop them every other year so you cut one half one year and one half the next and that reduces or completely eliminates the need to do much training so there are there are ways of doing it and i think it I think it would be a really useful trial for somebody to, to really take forward because I think raspberries probably amongst all the fruits have probably got the best possibilities because they naturally grow in that environment. Like it's a natural environment under trees and part shade. Ian, um, you mentioned that you also wanted to you know, use these trees to produce um, wood chips and biomass for your fertility. And I think this is such an interesting and important aspect because um, wood chips are a huge potential output of agroforestry systems, and it's so important for us to understand the potential um, that they have. Could you tell us a bit about how you've been using wood chips in the past, and how you're hoping, um, you know, to use your trees then to to supplement that uh, source of wood chips? Okay, well, we started experimenting with wood chips about 15 years ago. We, we were taking chipped wood from local tree surgeons. This was a mixture of different species, um, mostly from gardens, all from very close by. It all comes within literally a, a four, five kilometer radius of the farm. So it's very local. It's mostly material which would have gone to either landfill um, or to a central composting site. So it's very useful for us because it's local. It's very useful for tree surgeons because they don't have to drive too far with it and take it to some huge site somewhere. So we started composting that, which has been very successful. We've got a very good system of composting. So we're, we're producing around, well, we're taking around four or 500 cubic meters a year, composting that down to around 250 cubic meters. It takes 12 months to do the whole composting process. We're simply just putting it into windrows, um, about four meters wide, two meters high, and as, as long as we can. Some of them are 30, 40 meters long. And we turn it every three or four months to produce a more evenly mixed and homogeneous material. And at the end of the 12 months, it comes out as very beautiful, dark, black, um, organic material. I mean, humus almost. So it's, it's a 
it's a very useful product. And we've been putting that onto green manure part of the rotation. We don't put it on bare soil. Putting any organic material on bare soil is incredibly wasteful. So it goes on to <clears throat> a, a long-term green manure crop. Um, the reason for that primarily is that the soil at that point is able to accept this material without running into any problems with denitrification because there is still some wood which is not completely broken down. And there's very high <clears throat> earthworm populations, very high microfauna, lots of bacteria, fungi, all these things which you need for the final processing of the, of the composted wood happen on the soil. So we spread very modest amounts. We're putting down around between 50 to 70 cubic meters per hectare. So it's sort of five millimeters thick, a very small amount. And we do that twice during the seven year rotation. So it goes on two consecutive years when we have green manure crops. And that's the only time we apply it. So it's a very modest amount during the course of the whole rotation. We've now been around the farm. We're on the third. No, we've just almost completed the second uh, application. So second rotation. So we've done sort of 12, 14 years. And we're seeing some enormous benefits in terms of soil biology, crop yields, uh, pest disease resistance, uh, water holding capacity. I mean, the soil has changed out of all recognition. I mean, prior to doing this, we were using green manures only, which was fine. We managed to maintain fertility, but we weren't getting fantastically high yields. This has made a huge difference to the yield potential. As well as the composted wood chip for soil um, applications, we're also using it for um, making a propagation substrate. So we're using it as a, as a mix for plant raising. It's not a huge amount. We use probably five or seven cubic meters a year. Um, incredibly successful. We, we have the most amazing plant propagation from this material. We don't add any fertilizer to it at all. Uh, we do use a little bit of vermiculite to dilute it because it's, it's very high in nitrogen. So we need to dilute it. And also it improves the, the drainage and the water holding capacity. And that's completely eliminated um, any brought in compost we may have had to use for plant raising. A lot of most growers in the UK are buying in plant substrates, which in most cases are based on peat. They may have reduced peat, but they all contain some peat. This is a serious issue in terms of climate change and um, damage to ecosystems. Peat is a product which has to be banned and it is going to be banned in, in the future, but it hasn't been yet. So we've been able to replace any element of peat completely by using wood chips. So this has been perhaps one of the most successful parts of the of the composting process. As well as composted wood chip, this is, as I said, I think earlier, it's, it's a range of different species. It may contain um, most, a lot of it is actually ornamental trees because this is often what happens in people's gardens. They have ornamental trees, they get too big, they have to cut them down or they have to prune them. There's also quite a lot of um, cupressus leylandi, which are evergreen uh, conifers, which were planted for hedges. They get enormous invasion space of time and they cause all sorts of disputes between neighbours. So lot, we get quite a bit of that. Around about 25% of the material we get is from uh, conifers. This can be difficult to compost, so we need a range of other timbers to enable us to compost that successfully. On its own, it's very difficult because of the high level of resin and turpins. So as well as um, composted wood chip, we also have a different product, which is ramiel chip wood. So ramiel chip wood, 
Um, I think you have more experience of it in France than we have in UK because I think it's been uh, done quite a bit in the past. Ramachit wood is fresh wood harvested direct from trees. It's harvested during the winter. It's wood which is less than generally less than 75 millimeters in diameter. So it's young, fairly young wood um, because it's higher in proteins and 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 um, and elements that we need for the process. And it's spread direct <clears throat> onto land. So we don't compost it, we spread it fresh. It's spread literally the day we, we, we chip it. And we're using, for that purpose, we're using our own wood. We have a, an area of coppice, which I planted uh, 15 or so years ago, which is willow, uh, white willow. We're using that and we're coppicing that on a rotational basis. We're using that for ramiel chip wood. Um, we've also been doing trials with this ramiel chip wood comparing it with the composted wood to see what the differences are and that's been an extensive trial done over the last four or five years which you can read up it's about to be published soon by the organic research center it's been a very interesting trial we've taken it from right the way through the rotation almost from the green manures to the application of the ramiel chip wood right through to following crops and measured the crop yield we're looking at earthworm populations um soil biology we're looking at and uh, we're looking at P and K levels, phosphate to potassium are quite important to us, obviously, and also pH levels. So we're looking at a whole range of um, parameters of, of, of soil analysis to see, you know, what's happening during this process of applying ramiel chip wood and comparing that with where we're applying composted chip wood and where we're applying nothing. So it's a pretty extensive trial and there's been some useful information coming from that. Um, I think the Probably the most useful information for us as farmers in terms of soil um, measurement is the earthworm counts. The earthworm counts have been really interesting in that we've seen you know, huge um, populations of earthworms. We have, we have something in the region of um, 13 million earthworms per hectare uh, where we've been now doing this in its fourth year. So, you know, we're seeing some big improvements in, in soil health due to primarily due to the earthworm population which is really enjoying the the application of both the composted wood but also the ramiel chip wood really what we're looking at in terms of comparing the ramiel chip wood compared with the composted chip wood is do we need to compost the wood because there's a feeling that perhaps we don't need to compost it we could just apply it direct uh, and i think that is the case where we've got our own material but because we are bringing in material from outside um, and because the the use of uh, conifer wood um, we would have to compost that we couldn't use conifer wood as, as ramiel chip wood so it would mean that we can use that material which would normally go to waste it also means we can make a much more reliable um, plant raising substrate which we wouldn't be able to do with with just ramble chip wood it has to be composted in order to do that so it's been an interesting trial and certainly what we're looking at longer term is you know how much of our farm would we have to be growing trees on in order to, to support fertility 100 percent assuming that maybe at some point we may not have access to this material coming in from outside and just to understand the the ramble chip wood uh, do you just apply it on the surface and, and kind of what quantities and at what moment in the year? Yeah, it goes onto the surface. Um, it should never be buried because that will cause problems. It goes onto a green manure crop. This is really important. It's not going to work very well if it goes onto bare soil. In fact, we, we avoid 
bare soil on the farm as much as possible. We always maintain cover crops, even in, within crops we have green manures grown within crops to maintain soil cover. So it only goes on to a cover crop. And we apply, um, I think I've mentioned earlier, we apply around 50 to 60 cubic meters per hectare. This is about five or six millimeters thick. It's a very small amount. And it goes on usually during the autumn or early spring. Um, we avoid going on during the winter because land can be quite wet um, because it's a clay soil. So we don't want to be running around with machinery when it's wet. Um, autumn is the ideal, um, but sometimes we have to put it off till spring. And how long does it take for the, the wood chips to decompose then? It decomposes very quickly. The ramule chip wood, um, if it's willow, I mean, we've used a range of different species, but if it's willow, it's gone within six months. We don't see any sign of it. And that's an indication really of the high levels of biological activity we have in our soil. Now, if you put that onto a, a soil, which is you know very bad in terms of biological diversity it may take much longer because it doesn't have the necessary fungi and bacteria to process it other species of wood may take a little longer we've also we're coppicing some hazes here on the farm our own hazes which we planted 30 years ago we're coppicing some of those for ramble chip wood um, that's a mixture of blackthorn uh, hawthorn <clears throat> hazel uh, spindle and one or two other things and that's taking a little bit longer to break down but not still not much longer i mean it's, it's gone within a year you may get the odd bit of wood lying around because sometimes you get big chunk coming out it doesn't get completely uh chipped up and that may stay around but that hasn't caused any problems with denitrification the, the fear really with using wood on soil is, is to lock up nitrogen for a long period of time which is why we've only applied it to green manure crops where we already have very high levels of nitrogen because of the we have a mixed species green manure which contains some legumes and also we have a lot of bacteria and fungi in the soil at that point in the rotation to process the wood. Let's say you were able to plant enough trees to be self-sufficient in inputs. You think economically it would be worth it to be you know, planting, managing and pruning these trees to produce your own inputs. Like the, the total price of the, the input produced yourself would be competitive compared to um, buying anything else. Yes, it's certainly, I would say it's competitive to buying, say, fertilizers, which we wouldn't do anyway because we're organic, or, or even organic inputs. Um, it, I would say it is comparable to that. We've, we've been trying to put some costings on it. It's quite difficult, but, you know, we've costed out our wood chip compost. We know what that costs us per ton, and we've costed out the or chip wood. We know what that costs. It's, 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 it's very favorable. Given that the benefits are beyond things you can measure in in an economic sense, this is a difficulty. You know, how do you how do you measure resistance to pests and diseases? Um, you can measure increased yields, but you can't measure some of the factors that go into increasing those yields. So we're looking at the farm really in terms of how much, what percentage of land on the farm would we have to put into trees in order to generate enough fertility to carry on cropping at vegetables as we are now at pretty high yields i mean you know we do get some incredible years i mean we've just done um this last few weeks or well month ago now we finished harvesting potatoes and we, we're getting yields comparable with conventional farmers on on, wow. on better land so you know that to us has a real financial value in that we're getting very high levels of cropping so in order to maintain that in terms of carbon which is what 
really what we're looking at in the long term is you know how much carbon we can put back in our soil and with green manures we can maintain carbon but we cannot increase it particularly it's very difficult to maintain carbon through green manures only when you're taking crop off i mean we did manage it we have maintained carbon for many years but we haven't seen a big increase with the use of round mill chip wood and composted chip wood we are seeing an increase in carbon in the soils which is much more significant than it was when we only used green manures so looking at the long-term benefit which is really the carbon element of the soil in terms of making the soil more resilient um, looking at higher yields better pest disease resistance more water holding capacity all these things have quite a profound economic benefit to the farm so we're looking at around 20 percent of the farm would need to be growing timber crops in order to keep this we think to keep this system going there's a possibility that we could reduce how much carbon we put on in the future because we we don't want to be just adding carbon for the sake of adding carbon if it gets to a point where it's getting too high because it can get too high and there's a misconception amongst particularly organic producers that you can never have too much organic matter so where you can you can go too high with organic matter and that can cause all sorts of problems so if we saw organic matter getting too high we would reduce how much goes in so the idea would be to maintain what we have we've managed to increase it from where it was which is quite low and we get to a point where we might suddenly say right okay we have enough carbon we can reduce how much we put down so 20-25% of the farm in trees is the sort of figure we've come up with I mean it, it will vary from farm to farm it would depend on <clears throat> level of cropping you may not need as much of that if you're doing um, crops which are less demanding of soil than I mean horticulture is very demanding of soil and I think 20-25% of farm is a uh, it's a good working figure. It means that, you know, the, the country as a whole needs to double its timber production yeah. in order to maintain carbon content of soil. I mean, that's a kind of a very loose figure, but that's the sort of area we would be perhaps looking at in a, in a national sense. We need to increase our forest area by at least the area it is now, which is quite significant. It has to be 20% of the country rather than 10%. To recap the numbers then, um you'd have to cover 20 or 25% of about 8 hectares, if that's correct? We've already got quite a lot of that. We've got hedges. So within that 8 sure. hectares, we have nearly 2,000 kilometres of hedge, uh, 2,000 mm. metres of hedge, which yep. we can manage for coppicing. Uh, we have the tree lines. We have um, 0.3 of a hectare of coppice, which is on a piece of land which was too wet to produce anything else on it's a boggy part of the field that floods in the winter so we're, we're already producing quite a lot now um sure which hasn't interfered with cropping i mean we see this we don't see this as land out of production we see this very much as land in production but supplementing the vegetable production we we have to have realistic expectations we cannot expect to have eight hectares 100 percent cropping vegetables because we also sure. have this fertility building component um, where people do have 100% of their farm cropping, it's dependent on the huge amount of resources coming from somewhere else, either through fertilisers and rock materials or through organic matter from some other part of uh, the country or even some other part of the world. So it's really about future-proofing agriculture in the sense that we need to look at how sustainable it really is in terms of nutrient input and output, and also particularly so in terms of carbon retention and also carbon uh, building because we you know we need to get some of the carbon out of the atmosphere and the best way everybody knows the best way to do that is plant trees 
even if you do eventually cut them down and chip them up and return that carbon to so it gets lost somewhere. Mm. Um, but we have to maintain that long term. Actually, this is slightly off topic, but I can't help myself. Uh, could you just tell me what are some of the effects of having too much organic matter? Well, it depends, firstly, what you mean by too much, because it, it varies from soil type to soil type. Um, one of the problems that we've seen in the UK, and I think it's happening in other parts, particularly where we have what we call biointensive horticulture, where we have often very small areas of land, maybe one, one hectare or less, uh, with very intensive raised beds, dependent primarily on all its fertility coming from outside in the form of usually compost or manure or, or some organic material. Often this material is used not really just for supporting fertility, but also for controlling weeds. And where we're seeing very high inputs of organic matter over periods of time, and given that this sort of agriculture hasn't really happened much for the last, more than the last 10 years anyway, where we are seeing units that have been going for more than five years, we've seen very high levels of organic matter where we, we may have gone from 5% up to 8 or 10% in 10 years. And what we see there is very, very high levels of phosphate, incredibly high. I mean, you know, we, you know, we've never seen levels this high anywhere in normal agriculture and very high levels of potash. Now, what happens when you get particularly phosphate? Well, there's two, there's two problems. One is you get phosphate leaching. So all this phosphate has to go somewhere. It's not being taken up by crops because there's, there's just not enough crop being grown there, even though yields may be, often yields are very high on these system very high indeed so you get very high yields but the, the crop isn't taking off anything like the amount of phosphate is being put on and that goes for potash as well so there's a danger of phosphate loss through leaching into water uh, groundwater um, and surrounding areas so there's a there's a potential environmental pollution problem and then there's another problem which is more of an agronomic problem in terms of um, crops grown and that's where you have very high levels of phosphate you can get problems with uptake of macro elements particularly things like magnesium uh, boron um molybdenum. i mean it, it can vary depending on soil type and and, and initial soil um, levels of, of these nutrients but often it leads to huge imbalances so what we actually have is an imbalanced soil we have very high potash and phosphate levels which is leading to the lockup of nutrients the nutrients may be there but plants can no longer assess them I refer to this as soil obesity. <laughs> I don't need to explain what that means. It's pretty obvious yeah. what that is. And yeah. in it, you know, you can overfeed soil in the same way you can overfeed animals and plants and animals and people. So it's very much about over over application. Now often these intense and it's not exclusive to these intensive systems, it also happens on other systems as well. But one of the uh, the other area of, of these intensive systems is that there's no tillage or almost no tillage so you haven't got a breakdown of organic matter so organic matter levels building up even faster which you know sounds great i mean this is what we want we want to increase organic matter but what's happening the mantra of more and more organic matter has got kind of become the normal and this is what everybody not everybody but often people in very small intensive systems have this mantra you need to put more and more organic matter on now there's been some surveys done in us and uh, mostly US looking at some of these systems and they've come up with some quite worrying figures and we've also done some work here in UK or, or I've done some work with a colleague of mine and we've been looking at some of these systems where they've been in place for quite a long time and we're seeing 
a very common trend in that we've got these very high organic matter levels, very high phosphates and potash. I mean, in one case, we've never ever seen anything so high. It was it was crazy. And the reason we're looking at these is because I've been asked by these producers to try and help because they're having some crop failures, particularly with greenhouse crops where uh, tomatoes are performing quite badly they're not getting the yields they used to get and they're wondering why and we're finding very high levels of phosphate very high levels of organic matter so there is a there is a link here we're not sure what to do about this at the moment because the only thing really we've been able to come up with and it, it's, it's it's against what many people believe in is to go back to tillage mm. and to reduce that's very interesting and to reduce organic matter um, I mean, I was looking at a soil analysis a few weeks ago and, you know, the amount of phosphate and potash they have, they have enough to last for 20, 30 years with, with continuous cropping. You know, they don't have to worry about it at all, you know, which kind of, in a way, you think, well, OK, we don't have to put anything on the ground for a long time. We need to maintain the organic matter, but we can actually let it fall off a bit because it was 9% and that is high. Now, I, yeah. I've been aware of this for a long time because I inherited soil here um, we have a part of our farm which is a wall garden. It's been in intensive food production for in excess of a thousand years. And most of that production would have been almost predominantly based on the use of, of manure, mostly from human sources in the past, but perhaps m- less so in, in the last 50 years, uh, but partly from animal sources as well. And they would have applied quite large amounts. So I inherited a situation which was already very high in phosphate and potash, not ridiculously high, but it was very high. And it was something I'd never experienced before. And I, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. This is fantastic, you know. Um, however, what I've seen in the last 33 years that I've been using this soil, even despite what I consider to be very modest organic inputs, we're still seeing organic matter level going up in, in tunnels, not outdoors, but in tunnels where it's sheltered, to the point where I've, I have now reduced my organic inputs to once every six or seven years, whereas we were doing it once every two years originally. And looking very closely at the P and K levels, because the, the P level is still very, very high. And we also have no dig in this system or part we have one section no dig and one not so we are comparing the two and seeing some obvious differences so there is a there is a problem which a lot of small scale growers um, are really reluctant to acknowledge um, to the point where they will not even get soil analysis they don't even believe that soil analysis is is a useful this is what i call trumpism Uh, (laughs) they don't even acknowledge that soil analysis is a useful measurement of soil health but actually you know we don't base all our information on soil analysis a lot of it's based on what you see what you feel what what you see growing but soil analysis is a useful uh, way of looking at soils particularly if you're looking at nutrients such as phosphate uh, long term so whether this is going to become a, a national problem i don't know but we're certainly seeing you know there is a a general trend towards these very not exclusively, but generally very small units that are accumulating vast reserves of, of nutrient and not utilising it. There's another issue around this, quite apart from any possible soil problems that they might be heading towards. There's also the problem, or a moral dilemma, if you like, in terms of you know why would one hectare be using resources which could actually be feeding 50 hectares? 
because you know there's only so much organic matter and if we were to share it around they wouldn't be allowed to put it on it as death because it's just not available the reason this is happening is because it is available it's because of green waste compost which is often locally available to many people the price is quite low it's you know the price in uk really is is transport only you know the material is almost free because there's a lot of it because of the increase in in composting sites by by local councils by local companies who are processing increasingly more and more organic waste which you know we we always thought was fantastic what we were hoping was going to happen 40 years ago and it finally has so there is a, a moral issue around the use of very very heavy dressings of material which could be doing the same amount of benefit to soils but spread over a much wider area Ian uh, I think you know we've moved away from trees but I'm so happy we did allow ourselves this because it's fascinating what you're telling us and you're putting your finger exactly on what Dimitri and I have been trying to uh, fight against is that you know as soon as you have simple mantras that are all-encompassing and you know final you always discover that there's more complexity and nuance and problems. And I had no idea that it was the case with um, these problems with no dig market gardening. And it's really interesting that you're bringing this, this insight. I'm so happy you are. Well, it, it is interesting. And, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the, the evolution of what we do. And, you know, if you told me this 20 years ago, I wouldn't have believed you because I also felt that more organic matter was, was better and that you couldn't put too much on. That's what we've been led to believe. But there's been some really interesting trials studies done in the US looking at long-term situations where organic matter has been put on. And if you look at very small-scale domestic gardens, you know, people's backyards, which tend to get huge amounts of organic matter because they are small. And this is, you know, showing up some quite horrendous levels of, of nutrient. You know, in a back garden, it's not such a big problem. But if you scale that up to, you know, several hectares and it's next to a stream or it's near a public water supply, then there's an issue around that. The nitrate problem is another issue. I mean, some of these very intensive small-scale operations are, are putting on in excess of 500 kilograms of nitrogen per year. And that has to go somewhere too. It doesn't disappear. You know, it has to go into the environment. It's either going up as nitrous oxide into the atmosphere or it's going into the water and causing nitrates and nitrites, which is another issue in terms of water quality. So there are several con potentially contentious uh, problems which are, are, are coming up as a result of what people think is a very organic system. The organic certification has largely ignored this. Um, I've had some meetings with them in the last year about this. They weren't actually aware of the issues around this because they haven't been asking the questions. Um, and also, these systems actually almost never fall within organic standards. They may be certified, but actually, if you look at the organic standards, they're not conforming to standards at all because they're importing vast amounts of fertility from somewhere else. Um, so... There is going to have to be a change, and there is there is one or two people now acknowledging that this you know this this is a problem for the future, and and it, the process of sort of awareness I think has started. I I may have upset some people in, a year ago because I wrote an article in the in you know, one of our organic magazines which pissed a few people off, um, but at least people are talking about it and 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 looking they're looking a bit more closely at their soil now than they used to, and that that's good. You know, I don't condemn people for what they do. They thought they were doing the right thing. 
Um, yeah. and, and we did lots of things in the past which were dodgy, uh, you know, <laughs> and, we've changed, and we're still doing some things which are slightly dodgy. You know, we're, we're aware of it and we want to change it. And this is the important thing that, you know, if, if, if a part of your system's not right, you need to be looking at it and thinking how you're going to change it. In terms of composting, do you add anything to uh, the wood chips you compost or is it or all the nutrition is coming from the wood chips? Yeah, we have two heaps. We have one which is pure 100% wood chip and we have another which has some other material which is really waste vegetables from our production. So where we're packing and distributing, there's always a bit of waste. Um, where we're cleaning out greenhouses and tunnels from uh, crop residues, that goes on. So all the, all the foliage from tomatoes and peppers, that goes on there. It's quite a small amount of other material. I mean, it's less than 10% by volume. It's, it's probably only 5%. So it, it's still predominantly <coughs> wood chip. Oh, we put a bit of cardboard on there as well. Any packaging goes on there. Uh, but no, it's it's pretty much still just, we don't add anything. We don't need to add anything. We only use it because it's a really useful way of getting rid of waste materials. I know that you're currently using a diversity of species. But let's say you were to continue planting specifically for compost making or for ramial wood. Are there certain species that you think are more appropriate and others that are to avoid? Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, the one which has been we've used the most of is the willow. It's um, common white willow, so Salix alba. I mean, this has been really <clears throat> successful, A, because it grows really fast. B, it grows on really poor land. You don't need good land. And even on relatively dry land, it still produces quite a high yield. It's easy to manage. You know, we, we cut it on a seven-year rotation. We get quite large material from that. It's very easy to mechanize. You could mechanize this completely if you had enough area to do it. And it appears to produce a really good result. I mean, it, as Rami or Chip would, it breaks down quickly. You know, it has lots of fungal activity. Uh, the willow, when it's growing, is also biodiverse rich it has huge numbers of insects living within it has lots attracts lots of birds um it sort of ticks all the boxes it's indigenous you know there's so many right things about it however i'm always slightly slightly wary of single species anything so i would want to add other things to that hazel we've used also because we're coppicing that for our haze that's also produced really good wood chip it's it's not as productive as willow but it's a harder wood so you may you may get as much carbon over the same period of time. I don't know how different species compare in terms of carbon production. I mean, if we were to look at the ultimate test, it would be how much carbon can we produce in one year from one hectare? I mean, that would be the ultimate. But I still think a single species perhaps is not ideal. I think to add species adds greater diversity to what we're doing. It adds more in terms of potential fungi and different bacteria and, and all the things that live on wood. So I would add hazel. I would also add ash. I mean, ash is a fantastic timber in UK. It grows everywhere. Unfortunately, we now have this disease which is affecting the ash. So there is going to be a, you know, a vast amount of ash going into, uh, into, into wood burners, into chipping. You know, it's going to be available. Whether it's going to be available long-term, I don't know. Um, but ash would be, if it's possible to grow it in, in the present conditions with disease and I would go for ash as well. So we're really looking at hardwoods. It is hardwoods. It's indigenous hardwoods. I'm sure there's, there's hundreds of other species we could be looking at. Some of them may not even be indigenous. It could be non-indigenous species which are perfectly acceptable in every sense of the word. I think because we don't really have a, a lot of experience of it, I think there's huge 
room for experimentation in the future on this, looking at different varieties, both in terms of their wood chip potential, but also in terms of their, their biological function on the farm when they're not being chipped. Just to understand the machinery involved, um, if you have a lot of uh, you know trees to wood chip, do you rent a big chipper uh, once a year or do you have your own machinery? Yes, we wouldn't want to own the machine. It's not worth it for something which is only one or two days a year. So we, we have a contracted, in fact, it's the person that brings our, our wood chip. He's, he's a tree surgeon, he has a large machine. Um, which is self-propelled. It's about 30 horsepower. Um, it's pretty cheap. I mean, we've done, we've looked at the cost of doing this per cubic meter, and also we're also looking at how much carbon we 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 use in the process through the diesel. It's it's incredibly efficient in that sense. Um, the cost to us is quite low. He comes and spends maybe just two days chipping up vast amounts of material. He can do he can do 50 cubic meters in that time. Um, Yes, it wouldn't be worth buying this machine in or even hiring it in and doing it ourselves. He does the whole job for us and that suits us very nice. And in terms of turning the compost when you're actually composting uh, wood chips, do you just do the front loader or do you have a specialised machine? No, I have, a, I have a swing shovel which I hire in for a week every three months. So it's a small, it's a medium-sized digger. Um, a, a loader is not suitable. You need a lot of space for a loader. It's quite slow with a loader. Yeah. The... Um, the excavator is much better because it, it, it can turn 360 degrees. You get a much better mixing. It's much quicker. I can, I can turn um, 200 cubic meters of that material in, in, in just a day. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty efficient, actually. And that machine I can hire in for £300 a week. It's not, it's not a big cost. And you've mentioned um, cost a few times. And I know you might not have numbers in, in the top of your head. But is there anything you can share in terms of the cost of different methods of wood chip or compost if you've done those calculations? The only figures I've got in my head which I can remember are to do with our plant raising substrate, <clears throat> um, which we compared with buying material in, and even allowing for the fact that there's a fair bit of hand labour goes into this process. We're only doing about six or seven cubic metres a year, so it gets picked up several times by hand, by shovel. Um, the cost is is comparable with buying in, and I think the figure I came up with was, was something like 20 pence per litre finished. So it's comparable in that sense. I mean, we, we could cut the cost of that dramatically if we had some relatively simple mechanisation, which on our scale we probably ought to have. Well, we have recently um, invested in a, a sieve, a, a large sieve, because we were sieving by hand. Now we have a rotary sieve, and that's... I haven't costed it now, but that's cut the time of production by more than a third. So that's had a huge effect. I mean, for the sake of spending 300, 400 euros, we, we, we saved that back in just the first couple of mixes, really. And as a final question, what kind of advice would you give to um, a vegetable grower wanting to integrate trees, both in terms of things uh, not to do and maybe things to do as well? Well, the, f the first thing to do is to think about it for quite a while and really do research um, and more research than I did. I don't think I did enough. Um, looking and seeing and talking to other people that are doing it, I think is absolutely essential because, you know, you can only do research so much from a laptop. You need to get out there and have a look. I think that's probably the, the first thing I would say. In terms of pitfalls i think choice of varieties is always difficult you know i made a mistake with birch didn't again because i i was probably somewhat lacking in knowledge and because 
the people that were contributing towards the Vice Woodland Trust have no experience of growing vegetables whatsoever. They're really used to grassland and arable fields. So <clears throat> they hadn't considered the possibility of <clears throat> roots spreading across the field too far from that species either. So, you know, choice of species, I think, is really important. Um, I think uh, above all else is, is to take time in consideration. This is not something to rush into. I think you need to have a you know, a season or several seasons to think about it and certainly be looking at what other people are doing. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating and we've learned a lot through this episode. So thanks for taking the time and your busy schedule to talk to us. That's good. It's my, my pleasure and hope to uh, meet up at some point in the future. That's all for today and thank you for making it this far in the podcast. I really would like to thank Tyrion for chipping in with some questions. We really appreciate our listeners uh, contributing content and uh, we've received some suggestions these last days with amazing uh, questions and, and content and we really believe that the podcast is only, only going to get better with uh, your contributions. So please continue. You know where to reach us now um, on our website or on social media. And uh, as usual, all the links relevant to the episodes will be posted just below. See you next time.